Hello and welcome to Women with Balls, where I, Katie Balls, speak to today's trailblazers. Today I'm delighted to be joined by Joe Coben. Coben is the lead presenter of Politics Live. Prior to this, she co-presented Daily Politics for Andrew Neil and served as the BBC's political correspondent for London. Coben now spends her days chairing often rather argumentative politicians and pundits on the BBC's daily flagship politics show and dealing with the odd death stare. But what of the host herself? Well, let's find out because Joe is now with me in a BBC studio. Yes. Um, having managed to take some time out of your rather hectic daily routine. It is hectic. It's particularly hectic leading up to lunchtime. It feels like you're sort of galloping towards 12.15 from the moment you arrive. There isn't a spare moment. But it has been... A fantastic experience launching the programme. I do actually like launches. I've launched quite a few sort of radio stations and programmes. And this has been, in some ways, the most challenging and the most rewarding because... It's been a sort of radical change from the more traditional style of political programmes. And, you know, we build it as a sort of conversation of trying to get people of all sorts of different political flavours and commentators likewise and journalists to talk to each other and not go through the chair in quite the same way that we might have done on the daily politics, for example. Now, that has meant that there is less of the head-on, one-on-one, combative style of interview. We do still do those, but we try and weave them into what we call a discursive sense of talking about politics and other things on on a daily basis. And just in terms of preparation, you obviously have multiple guests and um, some confirmed at the very last minute. Yes. So someone has been on the call. Some of them arrive (laughs) and I see them for the first time when we're already live on air. Yeah, I think I've had the pleasure of once being sat in one of the off Millbank studios, being like, you'll go live soon, you'll go live soon. And then they said, actually, no, Amber Rudd's arrived, so we we don't need you (gasps) anymore. Katie, Um, I apologise profusely now. So in terms of prepping for each politician... I suppose a lot of the time there isn't much t- much time to do it. So how do, how do you go about that? Well, as you say, if we know who's coming on the show, great. So you can do your prep the night before or maybe even a couple of days before. And actually, quite often you will know the guests who have come from abroad, for example. You know, they've been booked for weeks. Jordan Peterson, for example, the quite controversial Canadian academic. Oh, I had reams of time to prepare for him and watch various interviews and programmes he'd done before. And that's great. And other historians and visiting sort of academics, they're fine. When it comes to the politicians, that can, as you say, literally change at the last minute, which can be slightly confusing. You will have prepared in your head a train of questions uh, and a line of questioning to suit that particular politician And then it's turned on its head or you're told in your ear, actually, Amber Rudd has just become Penny Mordaunt or Andrea Leadsom. And you just have to be able to adapt and be nimble. And that, of course, is the thrill of live television. And now we will talk more about Politics Live and your career at the BBC. But just as we like to do on this podcast, we tend to roll back the hands of time uh, to to what you're doing. Yes, and quite a long time in my case. (laughs) Not at all. Um, To to what you're doing before before you became a journalist, really. And you grew up in North London. Did you always want to be a journalist? No. So, well, when I say no, I didn't know is a more accurate description. I was one of those people who was sort of floating to some extent through school, university and a postgraduate 
qualification because I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. And I fell into it accidentally. I was working for a publishing company. I was flogging ad space. I needed to pay off my postgraduate student debt. And I picked up this advert that I was going to put in the magazine that I was selling ad space for. And it said they were looking for a German speaker. I'd studied German along with history and politics in European studies at Manchester. And I looked, I thought, German speaker at a WHO, World Health Organization, conference in Brussels. And it was a freelance agency, rather sort of uniquely called Tweak, Third World EEC, as it was at the time. And I thought, mm, I'll just reply. And I got the job. And I went off to this World Health Organization conference. And I was part of the journalistic team doing a lot of the German interviews, writing up at the end of the day. And it was, oh, it was about AIDS, and it was about tuberculosis. And I was hooked. I thought, I want to be a journalist. I didn't necessarily want to be a print journalist, but I just thought I want to be a journalist. And I worked with a rather flamboyant, colourful, former Reuters correspondent who ran Tweak, Third World EEC, called Peter O'Neill. He gave me sort of free reign and we did some rather exciting things. I went to Albania just after the communist regime had collapsed and managed to interview one of the leading politicians there working for Sally Berisha, who was the president, um, and spent a week in this country that was just coming out of years of communism. And we went to Sweden and discovered, actually, fishermen there who had pulled out of the straits between Denmark and Sweden are called the Skegarak and the Katagat, unforgettable names, former mustard gas bombs that had sunk to the bottom of the sea and they were getting burns um, all over their skin once they were hauling them out when they were going out fishing. And we sold this story and the stories Albania to the World Service, to LBC. And I suddenly thought, I'd quite like to have a go at radio. And I was given a slot on Spectrum Radio, which you won't know, but it was a it's a it's a sort of multi-ethnic radio network in London. And I was doing the Jewish programme and I did this hilarious call in. I mean I had no experience. I didn't know what I was doing. And I used to answer calls once a week to all these weird and wonderful people, mainly in North London. And I used to follow the Arabic service and I used to know it was the Arabic service, mainly by the cigarettes they smoked. Everyone smoked in those days, of course, still at work and in the studios. And I then made a decision that I wanted to do some broadcasting. And from then on, I pursued a, a career in radio. Now, when we had Emma Barnett on the show, she was talking about how when she was getting into radio, she was given what you could call the graveyard shift. And it was a call-in where... Lots of people would need to call and you'd have to respond. And she had various members of her family. I think it was her granddad on standby <laughs> in, in case in case either the calls were abusive or they just didn't arrive. Did you ever have anything like that on yeah, your show? Yeah, friends or? used to call in. I mean, that was the classic. I could do that, couldn't I? On Spectrum Radio, I used to line up whole reams of people. And actually, I was because so, I was so terrified, we weren't going to get any callers. And in the end... I didn't need it. I think a couple of them did call in and they were great and I've always appreciated it. And actually, I think I replicated that in local radio once or twice, but that shall remain a secret between us and everybody else listening to the podcast because you, you, you have this fear that you're just somehow not going to attract enough attention. But I, I went to do news in local commercial radio quite quickly and I became a news editor. I've, I've sort of done 
all the jobs, if you like, and I became an editor quite quickly after doing my first job as a reporter, a radio reporter in Slough at Star FM. I then went to Mix 96. I can probably even do the jingle, but I won't. And I recruited two amazing women to work with me at Mix 96, and we sort of learnt how to do news for a local area like Aylesbury, which is where it was. David Liddington was the MP. Crossrail was the story. Some things come back in full circle. He's now the de facto deputy uh, Prime Minister and Crossrail still yet to be uh, finished. I then decided I wanted to be a reporter and went to the BBC. I was poached. In fact, it was one of those great... Dream situations. Oh, it was. I couldn't believe it. I got a call and someone from the BBC in Thames Valley, I was working in Oxford at the time, said, uh, would I like to come and be the drive time presenter? I said, I might. (laughs) Okay. Playing hard, me enough, playing hard to go. I didn't actually. I said, yes, 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 of course I'll come. And I went across and presented for them at uh, drive time, which was great fun. And again, I cut my teeth on having to run a big desk, which I was hopeless at. And even worse, I had to spin tunes, vinyl, days of vinyl. I couldn't talk up to the vocals. I really struggled. And all my friends and colleagues used to kill themselves laughing when I had to do the half hour of music at the end of the shift. Uh, I played blondies hanging on the telephone at the wrong speed. It was terrible. They stopped that. They let me just do news for, for, for two hours. It was a much better decision. And then I got into political reporting. And did you always have an interest in politics? Because if I look at some of, I suppose, your fellow broadcasters, perhaps Andrew Marr, they almost had student politics when they were at university. There were parties, there were passionate activists, a, a bit like you sometimes find Westminster politicians and Westminster journalists were both in the same, I suppose, Labour groups, Mm. Tory groups. Did you have a student activist phase at all? I did have a student activist phase, but it wasn't in party politics. I was involved in Jewish politics, actually, at uh, Manchester University. Not in a major way, but I, I was involved, but I have always been interested in politics. So I come from a very political family in the sense of sort of debate, having grown up with it around the dinner a table. It was a very sort of classic case of evening spent arguing uh, and chewing over politics. And then I did study history and politics with German at university and then went on to do Middle East politics as a postgraduate. So it was interesting that I came back to domestic politics because I'd really focused more on European and foreign politics. But in the end, it was domestic politics that consumed me when I went to be the London political correspondent covering the first mayoral contest, which was incredible insight into campaigning with Geoffrey Archer and Ken Livingstone. And from then on, I thought I am going to stick with politics. And since then, you went from London correspondent, moved up the ladder and daily politics. What would you say was your big break? Well, that uh, that was my big break, being the London political correspondent. I became a network correspondent. I mean, all this jargon. I covered the London political scene. Covering that mayoral contest and the subsequent one was where I really got an opportunity to show my face and put my voice out on the airwaves because it was such a great story. I mean, it had everything, as you know, in terms of what happened to Geoffrey Archer and Ken Livingstone would say became a very successful mayor. I actually stopped that role before Boris Johnson uh, came onto the scene and as a result of that I interviewed Tony Blair I'll never forget actually about Ken Livingstone because he was warning of the dangers of Ken Livingstone he stood as an independent split from Labour at the time and that was my first time in number 10 and Alistair Campbell 
breathing down my neck. I remember standing there as I was sitting interviewing the, the then Prime Minister. When I then went to be a network correspondent, I worked for Breakfast News and I covered, first of all, the Afghanistan and then Iraq wars. Along the way there, what do you think your most challenging moment or perhaps if we're going to put it more bluntly career disaster <laughs> did, did you did you have any interviews that just went completely wrong I'm not sure that or any of them went completely wrong I mean there have been appearances where things have gone wrong I think one of the most difficult times was during the Iraq war and then the subsequent inquiry and that was a difficult time to be a political journalist there was an awful lot of pressure on us to report I mean as we would always do report in a in the fairest and sometimes sanitized way so as not to provoke any further controversy around that whole issue and that was that was quite tense uh, at the time and you know when you were doing high level interviews again you know you feel that sense of expectation on you that you are and have to be the voice of authority of gravitas of trust because you're working for the BBC and yet you want to inject a bit of personality into it too so while they may not or none that I can remember be complete disasters there were times when it was difficult and I think one of the hardest evenings was I was doing a late shift here at Millbank, which is where the BBC's political output comes from. And it was at the time of the legal advice. I don't know if you remember the then Attorney General, Goldsmith's legal advice, had been leaked. It was after the event and Channel 4 had got hold of the advice and so had the BBC. And I was the first person to go on air with that document and having to make a judgment. And that was difficult. It was fine, but it was difficult. And... Funnily enough, a few days later, I went on air thinking I was going to be talking more about this, only to find that the presenter had thought I was coming on to talk about the royal story that had just broken at the time. And I remember sitting there thinking, I don't know anything about this royal story. And I somehow had to get through this interview without without having any preparation before the presenter was told... Joe's not on to talk about that. She's on to talk about the, the, the legal advice to do with the Iraq war. That was quite a tricky. That sounds like a nightmare I would have. It would. Um, I could just how, feel the Did quest- you have to talk about it? I did. And how, of long, course, how long did you go? Uh, oh, about four or five minutes. Yes, I became a very quick expert, you'll find, on all things royal. It was difficult. And then would you say that moving to a show that Daily Politics was when you were able to have a bit more personality in your broadcasting style? Yes, You could have personality when you're doing and being a political correspondent, but it's a lot easier when you're presenting. Of course, I was presenting with a very quiet, shy, retiring presenter in Andrew Neil. I mean, I've taught him everything I know. Wallflower. Uh, Wallflower. And so I had to make a bit of room for myself to get the personality in there. But I learned an awful lot from him. And he has a great sense of humour. And we are able to create an atmosphere. And I think always had a sort of chemistry that came naturally. So it was fun as well as combative and politically sort of driven in terms of our interviews, which was great. Now, as a journalist myself, I think 
it's probably fair to say that political journalism is quite competitive. And I was wondering, when it t- comes to getting those big presenting jobs, as you say, Daily Politics and now Politics Live, have you ever had to be sharp elbowed, so, so to speak, to to be in the room with the people who are making decisions, things like that? Yeah, I think you do have to be a little bit sharp elbowed. Some people are better at it than others. You cannot afford to sit back and expect people to come to you and ask you to apply that call all those years ago when I was poached. That, that, that's in the dim and distant past. Well, you have to state what you want. I don't think you have to tread on people's toes. I think you can still be a reasonably nice person. But if you are not there presenting your case forcefully and saying why you would be the best person for the job, then why should anybody else to a certain extent? I mean, if you've got a mentor and a supporter, then marvellous. Make the most of it. But as a political correspondent particularly, ooh, there was a lot of sharp elbow manoeuvres going on because we were on like a rank. It's like a taxi rank almost. You know, I'll do that job. I want that gig. I'll do the six and ten o'clock news. I'll be on the news channel. And it was quite fierce. But it's not a bad place to cut your teeth. Talking about competition, I want to briefly talk about BBC Pay <laughs> because it is a the gender gap mm. is something that has had a lot of headlines. Mm. And I know it's something that you have spoken about briefly in, in the past. So I suppose it's not so much a competitive environment, but in a big organisation like the BBC, I was wondering before the what happened in 2017, mm. which was the publication of the BBC's highest earning presenters, which then really revealed quite an imbalance between the number of men and women at the top of that list. Mm. And I think it's fair to say you weren't on that list. Do you feel like before that happened, Mm. people talked about pay much in terms of BBC colleagues? Do you think people talk about pay more? Yes, Um, they do talk about it more. That was a watershed moment in 2017 and it had been building. Building to a crescendo where there were women like myself who sort of knew we weren't being paid the same as our male counterparts, but we didn't quite have the evidence. I'm not a wallflower and I'd made representations, but it's a lot easier to have an impact if you know what everyone else is being paid. And actually one of the biggest mistakes we made was just not asking our colleagues. It was actually relatively easy to do and it is what I then did and then found out and people told me. But it needed that mechanism to sort of unlock it and allow women like me uh, working in the BBC to say, it's enough. We've got to be paid the same for doing the same jobs. And I want you to tell me how you are measuring success. What are you measuring in performance terms to justify why one person is paid so much more than another? And I think it just lent itself to much more transparency And I think they are measuring success in different ways. And that is going to benefit women hugely because there isn't just one way to do a great political interview or to be a brilliant political correspondent or presenter. It is about taste and different people judging what's good makes that all, I think, a lot more beneficial to to, to both men and women and, and generally to staff at the BBC. And just for listeners, do you have any advice for getting a pay rise? <laughs> yes, I suppose I do. For the first thing is to find out. Ask um, for a friend. Yes, I, yeah. we can sit down and do this separately, Katie. Yes, I think you've got to be sure of what of what you want and why you 
justify a pay rise and what that should be and it should be achievable and you should be able to make a powerful case and be prepared to stand by it because it's not going to happen automatically. Now, you mentioned different interview styles. Moving back to Politics Live, and we touched in the beginning, but you basically have to chair over lots of politicians and pundits of very strong opinions and because of BBC Balance reasons too, very different opinions a lot of the time. So I was wondering, I suppose, what the most challenging moments have been. But I mean, the one that first came to mind when I was thinking about the various, I suppose, viral moments you've had on that show is I remember when Marc Francois and Will Self had the infamous death stare. Mm. And it was at the time, I think, quite quickly got everyone's attention because they generally looked like they were going to cause each other perhaps bodily harm if, if they looked at each other for, for any longer. But but then it came out that Will Self had apparently wound up Marc Francois by talking about his um, his private parts and the size of them in advance. So I just wonder, what's it like to chair something like that? Did you, do you hear what's going on before it goes on camera and have to keep a straight face? I certainly heard the whole thing and it was tweeted out by somebody else I, I'd like to to say it's very discreet. Um, and I thought I don't need to stoke this up any more than it already is. It was it was a sort of innocuous start to the warm-up as we do and the guests coming. I mean, you know, Katie, you've been on the show. Everyone was sitting down and Marc Francois and Will Self sitting next to each other. And it was my fault because I made a joke about the Attorney General using the term codpiece. And you remember this whole reference by Geoffrey Cox to cod pieces. And Will Self made a joke, a slightly provocative one, but it was a joke. And Marc Francois challenged him, fine. And it immediately got heated and we hadn't even gone on air. And I said, right, that's it. Cool it. We're going to start the programme. But the scene had been set. So I was already very much aware that this could potentially be difficult. And of course it was. And the death stare came as a result of a comment that Will Self made about people who voted leave. And Marc Francois felt that he had insulted all the millions of people that had voted leave. And in a way, their clash encapsulated the culture wars that that have erupted onto the political stage. In some ways, Katie, it's less about politics and more about culture wars and identity politics, for better or worse. Funnily enough, I couldn't quite see the stare in full technicolour glory because it was sort of to the right of me. It's quite difficult to sort of lean forward and look at them. But I mean, I realised they'd engage and they were look, they'd sort of turn to absolutely lock horns and lock eyes. And I thought, oh, my goodness, what is going to happen? And the editor in my ear says, Joe, have you got a strategy for what happens if it does end up in fisticuffs? And I shook my head. And to my left, I had Joe Tanner, and Grace Campbell, Alistair Campbell, Fiona Miller's daughter, activist, and Joe Tanner, uh, who used to work at Conservative Central Office. And bizarrely, it was International Women's Day. And all I could think of to say at the time was, apart from guys, guys, was happy International Women's Day, everybody. I'm going to turn to my other two guests as the camera stayed on Will Self and Marc Francois. But that was 
the sort of pinnacle, if you like, of people feeling that they wanted to express themselves really vividly. And it's happened on numerous occasions. We had Michelle Dubery, the businesswoman and Brexiteer, up against Paul Mason, the Labour commentator. Yeah, you who got had, accused of doing a death stare on that one. Uh, did I get accused yes. of doing it? Oh, it's catching, clearly. And the two of them had this quite sort of it was visceral argument and people have to judge what they learn from that. I mean, we don't always want to just shed heat. There's got to be some light too. But I think that's the great thing about Politics Live is you get moments like that which you probably wouldn't get in another setting. People feel unleashed. They feel free to do it. And one of the other unusual moments that I really enjoyed was Angela Rayner, Labour's shadow education spokesperson with Amber Rudd, then the former Home Secretary, next to each other on the week that the withdrawal agreement was first voted down, just talking to each other. I might as well have disappeared and maybe I should have done. But they did it for about 10 to 15 minutes and it was great just listening to them, just talking about leaving the EU or not. And it is the type of panel show where if you were to lose control of the panel it would just get very messy very quickly. I suppose a little bit like on a show in like question time, but I would say politics life is a very different atmosphere to it. So have there been points when you think I'm about to lose control of this? Oh, well, there have been points where I have lost control of it. And there was one relatively recently with Anna Subri, then at Change UK, and Camilla Tomini from The Telegraph, and other guests, but the, but the row was really between them. And the noise just built to, to a crescendo and people are determined to have their say and you've got to impose upon them this idea that the viewers can't hear. That's my, that's my biggest weapon. The viewers can't hear you. And if they can't hear you, then you're losing them. You're losing the audience. I did lose control a little bit there. But since then, I've decided I am going to be ruling with an iron rod. No, I mean, I don't really mean that. But it, it, but it, but I think there is a judgment call to be made about how free you let it go, like the time when Martin Lewis ripped up the paper in a very dramatic fashion. I think he was next to Chris Skidmore, a Tory MP and minister, for not answering the question. But it was good television. Um, now, just coming to the, the end of this podcast, thinking about, I suppose, the feedback you get on social media. Now, I think it's pretty safe to see that people often accuse, accuse Brexit bias no matter what. When I was researching this podcast, it comes up with the most, by your name, obviously the most likely Google searches. And by your name, it was, is Joe Coburn a Remainer? But then I also found, is Joe Coburn a Brexiteer? Mm. Which tends to normally suggest you might have the balance right if you're being accused, accused I of I hope so. And I think so. And I check social media every day for that response. And, you know, some days and some weeks it tips one way and then I'm always pleased to say it tips back the other way because there are programmes where it may look and feel and sound if you are a Remainer and I have been trying to play the devil's advocate and ask questions of the other side that it looks as if I'm Brexity. And conversely, for people who are Brexiteers, if they think I'm talking a lot from a perspective that might be seen as Remain, that makes me a Remainer. But because on balance... I get told I'm a raving lunatic Brexiteer and I'm a raving lunatic Remainer on both sides with pretty well equal force. 
I'm happy that I have probably struck that balance. And the same with Labour and Conservatives, even sort of the UKIP, SNP, Brexit party. It is about trying to allow everybody to say their piece. That's interesting that you say you actually actively look on social media. I do. Feedback because I think there's some presenters who have publicly said that they don't look at it because they find that it makes them not want to do their job sometimes. But do you think social media, in a way, can be a positive thing for that reason? I Listen, there's a lot of abuse out there. And I know people who get serious abuse. Politicians, without a shadow of a doubt, but commentators too. And I get my fair share. I've got used to it a little bit. I don't spend a lot of time on it myself, but I quite like to get a flavour and a sense of what is being said in the Twitter sphere in response to the programme. I, it's not that I take it as read and respond, but it's just a good indicator or one of a, of a many indicators about how the programme's being received and particularly on that issue of making sure you're balanced. Now, you spoke earlier about the fact that you're Jewish and I wanted to just bring that up because, I mean, you recorded a Radio 4 documentary on Mm. British Jews previously and I was wondering if you've ever found your religion, not that you bring it into your presenting, but comes into it in terms of viewers because when we had Emma Barnett on this podcast who presents Five Live and and now Newsnight, she was saying that she thinks she's pretty thick-skinned. But the thing that has really upset her was when she interviewed various... uh, Well, she interviewed Jeremy Corbyn on on childcare and she found that the fact that she was Jewish was thrown at her and she thinks she she got anti-Semitic abuse. Have you ever encountered that? Anti-Semitic abuse, yes, but only on social media. And actually, recently, that seems to have diminished uh, somewhat. I did do the documentary British Jews Right and Left, which was really... I really wanted to do the history of the Jewish community in relation to party politics here and how closely intertwined the Jewish community in Britain has been with the Labour Party traditionally. And it, to some extent, sort of ran parallel to my family's own experience. And they also decided, I think, when they came to this country that the Labour Party matched them in terms of what they were trying to achieve, better education and and social progress. Equally, parts of my family were huge admirers of Margaret Thatcher at the time, which many Jews within the community also moved towards and many came back to Tony Blair. So I wanted to sort of just look at the Jewish community and also... In a way, I interviewed John Landsman, who obviously is very close to uh, Jeremy Corbyn and founder of Momentum, the grassroots group behind Jeremy Corbyn's sort of support base, to ask him as a Jewish man how it felt to be in the Labour Party when there were so many accusations of anti-Semitism and see how he would describe what has been seen as a big problem for the Labour Party particularly. And so that's why I did the documentary. And in terms of my work, there was a time when we seemed to do the issue of anti-Semitism in the Labour Party on an almost daily basis because it was an issue that the party was not getting to grips with. Did it affect me personally? I tried to disconnect myself as much as I possibly could. But at a personal level, yes, I I think it would be, I'd be lying if I would say it didn't affect me. And did it surprise you? Did it surprise me about... That you would get, that in the the current day you would get abuse? Yeah, well, yes, 
I mean, in that sense, I didn't get abuse when I was younger, uh, a young woman. And now I am the age I am. I sort of thought we'd moved on from that. So, yes, I find that very sad that we're discussing these issues in the same way, I suppose, as we're discussing Islamophobia that exists too. And there's something about people saying that these things do come back um, that I hope they never would. Now, the final thing I wanted to ask you was just ahead of this podcast, obviously we wanted to have you on, but we also had a few people get in touch and we asked for suggestions of guests that they would like on the podcast and your name came up several times. But often I found people said, well, get Jo Coburn on because she is an unsung hero. And there was a suggestion that perhaps compared to some of the other BBC presenters, you perhaps don't court publicity as much or you are seen as a less showy presenter. My word's not yours, but... I was just wondering if that was a conscious decision. It's funny you should raise that because I get that a little bit on social media. It's true I don't court publicity in in that sense, which... I may need to revisit, particularly for Politics Live. You're doing pretty well. (laughs) Yes, that's thank you. That's true. Because I think you have to make a decision. Once you start to court publicity, and great for all those presenters who do and do it so successfully, you, you you have to keep that going and it comes with downsides too. You're right. I've managed to, maybe slowly, get to this position of presenting a programme I absolutely love in, in a time in politics which is incredible in so many ways. And I love the sort of political environment in which I work. If I want to go beyond that and court publicity, I, I would have to spend quite a lot more time and energy on that, perhaps, rather than just focusing on my work. And that's not to say that you can't do both. Of course you can, and people do. So if it is a conscious decision, it's a sort of quiet conscious decision. I wouldn't say it's something I, uh, a line I rigidly take. And if anybody would like to interview me for, you know, glossy magazines, I'm, I'm there. But not rival podcasts. <laughs> Thanks, Joe. Thanks for listening. And if you'd like to send us your feedback on this podcast or any other many podcasts, please do get in touch. Just email us at podcast at spectator.co.uk.